Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. This morning we are going to return to the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. 
And this is a very sobering passage, as you know from last week, and we'll find out again this morning, one which I suppose in some ways seems out of place in a very brief letter of only three short chapters to a church that was full of love and full of faith, full of hope, faithful, enduring, spreading the gospel far and wide so that their reputation had gone into all the world. And yet, here in this little epistle are placed some of the most terrifying words that have ever been revealed from heaven. There is much in these epistles about the love of God, the salvation that He provides. But nowhere in any epistle is there the power and potency of warning of eternal judgment such as here. Now, Paul was a judgment preacher. That is not deniable. He spoke often about judgment. He spoke often about sinners. He said that sinners were storing up wrath against the day of wrath, back in Romans 2. He said as people live in an ungodly way and reject God and reject the gospel, God is patient. God is tolerant. God displays mercy. And sinners carry on their open rebellion against Him. But all of it is being written down in heaven so that God is keeping a record of the offenses against Him. And they are accumulating to that day which will come, that day of wrath. The world is so used to mercy, so used to God's patience, that it exploits its sinfulness freely and joyfully. It relishes its sin. And because that sin does not have necessarily immediate consequences, people get used to mercy. In fact, they get so used to mercy that they think divine justice is unfair. That is a deadly mistake to make. Scripture tells us there is no fear of God before the eyes of men. There is no fear of God. There is no fear of judgment. There really is no fear of hell, broadly speaking. Some people have thought that while Paul is a judgment preacher, on the other hand, Jesus was not. Jesus preached love and kindness and forgiveness and compassion. The truth of the matter is that Jesus was even more of a judgment preacher than Paul. In fact, Jesus was a hellfire preacher. He spoke in very explicit terms about unquenchable fire, about conscious everlasting punishment. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, in the fifth chapter, he talked about the fires of hell. 
That's his first sermon recorded in the New Testament. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to kill both soul and body in hell. He designated the Pharisees and the scribes of Israel as sons of hell, who make more sons of hell of their converts. He told a story about a rich man and a beggar, and he said the rich man died and was in hell, in torment. He spoke in Matthew 25, 46 of eternal punishment. In Matthew 8, he spoke of that eternal punishment as outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in John chapter 5, he says that God had made him the judge. So that when that inevitable day of wrath comes, that day of the Lord, as it is identified, he himself, no other than the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the final judge and executioner. The final judgment is described in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, in a few verses at the end of that chapter. Let me read them to you, starting at verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and its books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is future history describing the great white throne final judgment. The judge, as I said, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom, he says, the Father has committed all judgment. He is the one who will return as judge and executioner. At his return, this judgment will take place. And that is Paul's subject as we look at chapter 1 in verses 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. The key phrase here is in verse 7, the Lord Jesus will be revealed. Revealed is the word apocalypsis, the apocalypse. That means the unveiling, the uncovering, the disclosing, the revelation. This is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, His unveiling. In His first coming, 
Though he was God in human flesh and he did the works of God and spoke the words of God, he was still veiled in human flesh, veiled in humanity. He was in the world. The world was made by him. But John 1.10 says the world did not know him. He repeatedly says to them, you do not know who I am. You know the physical, earthly features of my history, but you don't know my nature. At his second coming, however, he will be known. He will be unveiled, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. All of the universe will go dark, all the stars and sun and moon, and out of the blackness, according to Matthew 24, 30, will come Jesus Christ in blazing glory, and every eye will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So we're looking here at the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, we saw last week three features of that unveiling. Back to verse 7, He is going to be revealed from heaven. He's coming back from heaven. Acts 1 says he went to heaven in his ascension. He took his seat at the right hand of the Father where he has been interceding for his own. He is in heaven now in terms of his glorified resurrected body. He is in heaven. He will come back from heaven, first of all, to catch away his church. And then seven years later, he will come in this fiery judgment and to set up his kingdom. Now, obviously, His Spirit is omnipresent everywhere in the world, but He, in actuality, in His resurrection body, is in heaven at the right hand of God from where He will return and be unveiled in glory. So He comes from heaven. Secondly, He comes with His mighty angels. His mighty angels. They belong to Him because He is God he is God, and so He occupies a seat on the throne of heaven. He is God, and so the angels belong to Him. They will come for two purposes. They will come to judge. Matthew 13 says the angels will do the judging when He comes. It will be the Lord basically distributing His judgment verdicts through the power of His angels. But they come not only to judge, but according to Matthew 25, they come to gather the redeemed into the kingdom. So the angels are his agents of judgment and his agents of collecting the saints into the kingdom. Thirdly, it says he will come in flaming fire. That's not a, an earthly fire. That's not a fire made up of uh, elements in this world. That is a glory fire. He comes in blazing divine heavenly glory. So this is the unveiling of Christ. This is the next event in human history to come. This is the apocalyptic event, the, the final unveiling of the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we saw those three features from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. We also asked some questions, and we're going to follow those questions up. Why is He coming? Two reasons. Reason number one that we'll look at is retribution. Reason number two, which we'll look at next time, is relief. Relief. You see the word relief in verse 7. You see the word retribution in verse 8. These are the two things, 
to know about the unveiling of Christ. Now, I want us this morning to think about retribution. Go back to verse 8. He will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. On the face of it, that word seems ugly. It seems um, harsh. It may even seem extreme. But the word in the Greek is ekdikasis. And the center root of that comes from the root that means just. It's the root that we get in the word justice or justified or righteous or righteousness. So this is full just punishment, full righteous vengeance. God's retribution is not like man's retribution. It is not unruly, selfish, even sinful. It is not a passionate kind of flaming of anger, the kind that leads sinners to a, a kind of revenge that is ugly and self-seeking and perhaps even unjust. There is a story, you know, in Matthew 18 about a man who had some debtors and they owed him a reasonable amount, but instead of helping them to pay what they owed, he grabbed them and threw them into prison. And judgment is pronounced on that man. That's human vengeance. That's human hostility, human anger. God's full punishment has at its core His justice and His righteousness. That's why Romans 12:19 says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and that comes from Deuteronomy 32:35. Don't take your own vengeance. It will no doubt be sinful, selfish vengeance. Leave it to God. And God will take vengeance, and the Son will be the instrument of that vengeance. Back in Luke 20, our Lord told a story, a parable about a vineyard. We're familiar with it. It starts in verse 9 of Luke 20. Just listen to this. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard, which they owed him. It was his vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He proceeded to send another slave. They beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, you know what that story is about, right? It's about the nation Israel. 
And it's about the fact that God placed them in His vineyard, as it were, to tend His truth, His Word. And God sent prophets, and they abused the prophets, stoned the prophets, killed the prophets. Finally, God sent His Son. And what did they do to Him? They killed Him. What is God going to do about that? Verse 16, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be, but it was. Destruction came on Jerusalem, on Israel in 70 A.D. And the Lord turned to the church as His holy people. But the way this ends is directly at the point of our looking at Jesus in judgment. Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. He changed the metaphor from, from a vineyard to a stone. They rejected the stone, and of course that's language taken from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And then this in verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust or grind him to powder. What a frightening image of Jesus who is the stone. If you fall on him, he shatters you into pieces. If he falls on you, he grinds you to powder. This is speaking of Jesus in his judgment role. This is what happens when he returns, which Luke 21:22 calls the days of vengeance. The days of vengeance. So let's ask some questions about this, this coming judgment at the return of Christ. And we'll ask the very proverbial questions. First, what? What is that final vengeance? What is it? Well, we already know it is retribution. It is full punishment. It is the avenging of wrong based upon pure and accurate justice and righteousness. But beyond that, what is it? Let's answer that in, in verse 9. They will pay the penalty. It is a just penalty. Again, this comes from the same root as justice and righteousness they pay the penalty. For what? For all their sins against God, which are endless. And as I mentioned earlier in Romans 2, 4 and 5, they're just accumulating, accumulating, accumulating sin, building up for a righteous recompense against all that sin when the penalty is paid. That word penalty is Translated, same word in Greek is translated in Jude 7 as punishment. Just punishment. Again, righteous punishment. Now, no text outside of the detailed passages of Revelation is as potent as this one in portraying Jesus as the judge. And what he is doing when he returns is exacting a just penalty on sinners who do not know Him, do not believe the gospel. Jesus is the judge and the executioner. This is terrifying truth. 
This is truth that people don't like to talk about. Even preachers don't like to talk about it. But it's very dangerous not to talk about it. And I'll show you why. Back in Ezekiel chapter 33, God speaks to Ezekiel. Chapter 33, we'll just pick it up in verse 6. If the watchman sees the sword coming and doesn't blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Spiritually speaking, we as preachers, all of us as Christians, are watchmen on the wall who see the sword coming. The sword in the hand of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as for you, son of man, title for Ezekiel, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. That is very serious. If you don't warn sinners, then their blood is on your hands. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It does mean that you come under serious discipline from the Lord. could even cost your life. And yet how common it is, even for preachers, to avoid speaking of judgment and hell. So that's the first question, what? What is this vengeance? It is divine justice. It is retribution. It is time for God's wrath to be struck and for sinners to pay the penalty. Which leads to the second question. Why? Why? And the answer is so simple that it's really stunning. Verse 6. For after all, it is only just. For after all, it is only just. It's that simple. There's not some kind of long, drawn-out explanation with all kinds of caveats. Why would Jesus come back to do this? Why would He come back in such avenging judgment? For after all, it is only right. In Job 37.23, Elihu, one of Job's friends, was correct when he said this about God. And He will do no violence to justice and full righteousness. God will never be unjust. He will never be unrighteous. This vengeance is just. Such devastating eternal punishment is the just 
penalty. It is the correct punishment. It matches the crime. It is righteous vengeance. It is coming from the one righteous God to sinners who have lived in disobedience and unbelief and impenitence against Him. It is not more than sinners deserve. It is not less than sinners deserve. And if you think the judgment is too great, you fail to understand the greatness of the crime. Human beings underestimate the horror of sin. That's why they can't comprehend the horror of hell. It is justice from the perfectly righteous judge who always does right. Revelation 19.2, His judgments are true and righteous. His judgments are true and righteous. No capacity in Him to be unjust or unfair. After all, it's axiomatic. After all, that's, that's just point blank. There's no sense of defensiveness in this statement. After all, that ought to be clear to everybody. After all, this, this is certain. This is right. This is true. It is only just. It is only dikaios, righteous. In fact, it is the only righteous way to deal with those who have sinned against God. The Scriptures emphasize the absolute righteousness of God in final judgment, the righteousness of Christ as the judge. In this very, very public judgment before the whole universe of men and angels, all will acclaim God is righteous. He is righteous in acquitting believers because their sins were paid for in the death of Christ to whom their sins were imputed. He will be declared righteous in damning the ungodly for they rejected the only way of forgiveness and are left to pay the penalty themselves. God's vengeance is based on His righteousness. You might think to yourself, well, how am I supposed to understand that? Isn't there some deeper philosophical reality here that can take a little of this horror off this doctrine? No. It is only just for God to repay. It's only just. That's all you get. That's the answer. It's no more sophisticated than that, no more philosophical than that. God's vengeance is based on a principle. It is an inviolable spiritual law bound up in His holy nature. God must give back punishment that matches the crime. And by the way, in Colossians 3.25, it says God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. So it isn't that He's more kind with certain sinners than others. He is no respect of persons. This is... This is all legality. This has nothing to do with some affection that God might have for certain people, Jews or maybe Gentiles. There is judgment, Colossians 3.25, without partiality. An illustration of this in Luke 13, 
Very, very remarkable one. Our Lord was confronted by some folks on a a certain occasion, chapter 13, verse 1, and some folks reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, Jesus lived in Nazareth. That's in Galilee. Some of the Galilean people went down to offer sacrifices at the temple. They went in to offer their sacrifices. And while they were offering their sacrifices, Pilate's men came in with knives and slaughtered them so their blood was mixed with the blood of sacrifices. This is disturbing to the Jews who are asking the question of our Lord because these are not people sinning. These are people obeying the Old Testament law. These are people doing exactly what God told them to do. So Jesus knows what's on their mind. He said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? You you might assume that. They must have done something horrible for God to allow Pilate's soldiers to slice them to death. He says, I tell you, no. No, they aren't any worse than any other sinners. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Maybe not that way, but you will perish. Or, he says, do you suppose those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, apparently a construction project down at Siloam, uh, fell over and crushed to death 18 people? Do you suppose that they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem, the people who didn't get killed by the collapse? And our Lord says the same thing. I tell you, no. They're no better or no worse. I'm telling you, unless you repent, you're all going to perish. And you don't know when and you don't know how you're going to die. But when you die, you will perish. Because universally, eternal judgment is the just punishment for rebellion against God. Sin deserves death and hell. Man is not a helpless, careless victim. Man is a chosen, purposeful, premeditated sinner. And the threat of God's vengeance and divine judgment with this kind of severity is a means by which God makes the way of the transgressor hard, to borrow language from Proverbs 13. These kinds of texts are putting up roadblocks that you have to push through to get past. But sinners push through. Romans 1 says, When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They became fools who thought they were wise. So why does God do this? Because it is just. It is right. Crimes committed against God bring a penalty that is commensurate with the crime. And the worst crime in the universe is to rebel against God. It's right for God to repay. Now, he also says to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The first group that God will repay are the persecutors of the truth. Persecutors of the truth. Those who know the truth about God, maybe know what the Bible says, maybe know the gospel, 
And not only don't believe it, but persecute it. This is an old principle. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12, where God says concerning Israel, speaking to Abraham about the future people, whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And that's just part of human history. It's one thing to reject God. It's something else to reject the gospel. It's an even greater crime to take up the persecution of those who are God's. Such justice is right. And in the case of the Thessalonians, they were enduring persecution. Go back to verse 4. He is proud of their perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. It's only right for God to repay. And He starts with repaying those who afflict His children. Matthew 18, He says this, Cause one of my little ones to stumble, you'd be better off if a millstone were hanged around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Let the non-Christian persecutors understand that God's justice is coming. So what? Retribution. That's the what. Retribution. Just, full punishment. Why? Because it's right. And if you don't think it's right, it's only a reflection of the fact that you're a fallen human being and that you're so used to mercy you think justice is unjust. It is just. Thirdly, who? Who? And Paul is quick to reveal that it starts with the persecutors, but it doesn't end there. Notice verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Two descriptions. Those who do not know God. Could be Gentiles, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. He says that, the Gentiles who know not God. The Gentiles who know not God. Knowing God is foundational. In our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So, if eternal life comes to those who know God and know the Son of God, then eternal destruction comes to those who do not know God. Again, this can be a Gentile. Back in Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah says, Pour out your wrath, talking to God, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, on the families that do not call your name. This is a prophet praying that God will pour out wrath on nations that do not know God, do not call His name. You say, that seems harsh. But you have to remember what it says in Romans 1. 
that the knowledge of God was available to everyone by the creation. That's why wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, who reject the truth. They're without excuse, Paul says, because the truth was available through reason and creation and in Romans 2, through the moral law written in the heart. There was enough, there was enough of God revealed rationally in the universe and morally in the heart to lead even a pagan in the direction of God. The truth of the matter is what happened is defined in Psalm 9, verse 17. The nations forgot God. They forgot Him. We saw in Psalm 2 they fight against Him. So this can be the nations. They don't know God. Just a reminder. What happens to people who die and don't know God? Some people want us to believe that somehow God's going to take care of them, send them to heaven anyway. No, this is what this says. This can't be more explicit. Retribution comes to those who do not know God, which ought to be a good reminder of how urgent it is to proclaim the, the gospel around the world, to fulfill the Great Commission. It says there are nations all over the globe, people all over the globe, who don't know God. And if they die not knowing God, what awaits them is retribution. God can be known if they follow what is obvious in the creation and what is obvious in the moral law in the heart. And if they follow that, God would reveal the rest of the truth to them, the seeking heart. But instead of following reason and moral law, they reject it and become inexcusable and give themselves up to sexuality, homosexuality, and a reprobate mind, as Romans 1 says. But this can also refer to a Jew. Yes, even the Jews who knew about God did not know God. You had Gentiles who didn't even know about God. You had Jews who knew everything the Old Testament revealed about God. But listen to what Jeremiah says to them. Jeremiah chapter 9 this is an amazing indictment, but it's the story of Israel. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Why are you weeping, Jeremiah? Why are your people being slain? Why are they going to be hauled off into Babylonian captivity? Why? Down in verse 6 he says, Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Because the previous verse, you don't speak the truth. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. The Jews who had all the revelation about God didn't know God. So there were Gentiles who didn't even know about God, and they rejected the path to God through reason and moral law. There are Jews who had the revelation about God and they rejected that in prophet Hosea chapter 4. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. You don't know me. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have 
rejected knowledge. I will reject you. You have forgotten the law of your God. I will forget your children. In John chapter 7, New Testament, verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple to the Jewish people, You both know me and you know where I'm from. In other words, you know me in my human presence. You know I'm from Galilee. And I have not come of myself. You, you know I've come from God. That's obvious. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. You don't know God. Gentiles don't know God. Some of them don't even know about God. They've never said his name. Jews know about God, but don't know God. Galatians 4 is an indictment of those in verse 8 who did not know God. Ephesians 2 is an indictment of those who are without God in the world. Titus 1.16, those who profess to know God but by their deeds deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless. This is a horrific situation to be in, not to know God. Not in the knowing about God, that, that's as damning as as anything, there's a hell for those who don't even know about God. There's a hell for those who, knowing about God, don't know God. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 to those Jewish people who said, Lord, Lord, we've done this and done that in your name. Depart from me. I never, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. But there's even a greater guilt. There's a greater guilt than just not knowing God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Go back to the verse. End of verse 8. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Over in chapter 2, verse 12 it's referred to as not believing the truth. This intensifies guilt. There is a hell for people who didn't know even about God. There's a greater suffering. There are degrees of suffering in eternity. There's a greater suffering for those who knew about Him but turned their back on Him. There's an even greater suffering for those who knew the gospel. Turn to Hebrews 10. And I want you to follow this. Hebrews 10. Here comes the most severe suffering. Those who know the gospel and reject it. Listen to this, verse 26, Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, and the sin there is the sin of unbelief, impenitence. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All that is left, if you reject the truth, is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Verse 27, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Then listen to this, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy 
on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment there is an indication that there are obviously degrees of punishment in hell. There is a more severe punishment for the person who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant or the death of Christ on the cross by which he was set apart and insulted the Spirit of grace. So if you reject the law of Moses, you die without mercy. But there's a much severer punishment if you trample under your feet the Son of God and His covenant ratifying death on the cross which set Him apart as the Redeemer. And further, in doing that, you insult the Spirit of grace who offers you the grace of salvation in His name. How much severer will that punishment be? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And He will repay equal to the crime. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, you obey the gospel or you disobey the gospel because the gospel is a command. It's a command. It's not just a story. It's a command. Acts 17, 30 and 31, God commands all men everywhere to repent and to understand that Christ is the Lord and judge and God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. Romans 1, Romans 10, Romans 15, Romans 16 talks about salvation as the obedience of the faith, the obedience of the faith, because the gospel is a command. Believe. So when the Lord is revealed in the apocalypse, the unveiling of Christ, there will be, first of all, retribution. And what is that? It is justice, equal punishment for the crime. Why? Because it's right, and God always does what is right. Who? Those who do not know God, those who reject the gospel, and particularly those who afflict those who believe. Persecutors. And finally, how? How does this punishment come? How does this fall? Verse 6. Verse 6 simply says, He will repay with affliction those who afflict you. This indicates to me that there will be greater punishment in hell for those who are the persecutors of the believers. There is a, a severity of judgment for those who never heard the name of God. There's a greater severity of judgment for those who heard the name of God and rejected it, Old Testament knowledge. There's a more severe punishment for those who rejected the gospel, and there's a more severe punishment for those who assaulted and persecuted those who believed the gospel. But what is this punishment? In any case, those are only degrees. The punishment, verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The penalty is eternal destruction. It's forever. It's forever. It can't mean 
soul sleep. It can't mean annihilation. Because whatever this is, is forever. And if you go out of existence, that's not forever. Whatever it is, it lasts forever. The Greek term is used 75 times in the New Testament. And always means eternal. Even the references to past time. Past references to eternity as well as future references to eternity, but always eternity. It is used of God in Romans 16:26 that He is eternal. It is used of eternal life, John 3:16. It is used of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5:9. It is used of eternal redemption, Hebrews 9:12, and I could go on and on. It means eternal. But in the case of these who feel the retribution of God, it is eternal destruction. That's alathros in Greek. And let me tell you what the word means, ruin, eternal ruin. It speaks of a ruined life. It's a conscious recognition of a ruined life. The way to understand it is not that time passes, hours go by, weeks go by, years go by, millennia go by. It is simply a moment that never ends. One moment of grief that never ends. One moment that never stops. Like the final stages of a cancer patient. Only you never die. It never ends. You just experience the pain, the uselessness, the hopelessness, the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the valuelessness. No purpose, no goal, no future, no hope. Our Lord Jesus had some terrifying things to say about such an experience. It is a furious fire that gives no light to the impenetrable darkness. It is an experience of weeping and grinding of teeth in pain and frustration. Soul and body are both ruined as far as worth and beauty are concerned. Any vestige of the image of God is forever gone. Consuming worms never die. The fire is never quenched and there's no escape. Two things define that kind of existence. Back in verse 9, first, it is away from the presence of the Lord. It is away from the presence of the Lord. Wherever it is, the Lord isn't there. Imagine an existence in a place where there is no presence of the Lord. No human being ever living in this world has lived in such a place. Because God is in this world, isn't he? It's in Him we live and move and have our being. His providences are all around us. We enjoy His beauty and His provision, even unbelievers. This is a place where one is alone and there is nothing of God there. Nothing of life, joy, peace, satisfaction, love, pleasure. That's why it's outer darkness. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's just a place where God is never present, forever banished from the one who is the source of every good and perfect gift. And then secondly, Paul says, not only away from the presence of the Lord in any relational or beneficent sense, 
but also away from the glory of His power, from any visible manifestation of His splendor. Even in this world, you, you see the glory of His power, don't you? You see it in the majesty of creation. You see it from the microcosm to the macrocosm. You hear it in music. You see it in art and beauty and love. But in that place, you will be away from the splendor and majesty of His power. In other words, His presence won't be there and nothing that He does will be there. This language the Apostle Paul borrowed from Isaiah Three times in Isaiah 2, Isaiah uses the phrase, the splendor of His majesty, verse 10. The splendor of His majesty, verse 19. The splendor of His majesty, verse 21. Even living in this world, you see some of the splendor of His majesty. Looking into space, something of the splendor of His majesty. In that world, you will know nothing of the presence of God and nothing of the splendor of His power and majesty on display. And you will know nothing of the splendor of His majesty manifest in the lives of the redeemed. This will happen when our Lord returns. This final judgment. What about people who die now? Their bodies go into the grave. Their souls go into the place that God created for the unbelievers. Hell. Not the final hell, but still hell. The rich man died and was in hell. They will be resurrected to come to the tribunal in Revelation 20 and then sentenced to the final lake of fire. That all takes place when the Lord returns and He's coming. He's coming in power and glory. So, that's the message. That's the warning. Make sure you warn others as well. Father, again, we come to You with hearts that are heavy. This is indeed a heavy, heavy weight to carry. To understand the horrors of eternity in a moment that never ends, a moment of pain and suffering. So, Lord, may we all examine our own hearts to be sure that we know You and You know us. And may we be energized to share the wondrous truth of the Gospel, the good news that You will deliver us from the wrath to come through faith in Jesus Christ. Bring sinners to yourself today. Open the heart and the mind of those who have not believed, those who are accumulating wrath against the day of wrath. May they flee to you for the grace that is there to receive forgiveness and deliverance and rescue. Save them for your glory, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. 
John MacArthur and Grace to you reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
How many years? This is Ken Ham, speaker and apologetics writer with a passion for God's Word and the Gospel. Before Noah's flood, God said man's days would be 120 years. Now many people think this means that no one will ever live longer than 120 years, but many people live much longer than that after the flood. This number 120 is actually a countdown to God's judgment on mankind at the time of the flood. Now this doesn't mean it took that long to build the ark. The Bible tells us God commanded Noah to take his wife, sons and sons' wives onto the ark with him. Using the biblical data on when his sons were born, we can estimate it took between 55 and 75 years to build the ark and then the flood as the judgment came. Get equipped with answers about science, the Bible, the flood, creation and more by visiting our faith building website at AnswersRadio.com. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, Soli Deo Gloria. Like deja vu, right? Hey, yo, I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been. Cause Christ in the music is no longer the hot trend. Logic says, well, maybe I should just stop then. But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten. I do this for one reason. Jesus, the true king, son, to help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1. And though the rap world is ever crowded, if heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000. I know you out there. I still get the emails. Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail. It's founded on the rock. And the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic Whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic And the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed With the wrath of God is burning hot We were locked in sin's closet Our conflict was cosmic God plotted to stop it Hit the demonic with a shot I was copping narcotics Agnostic with a plot No optic for the knowledge Of the God who often not Jesus rocked me with the gospel And it tied me up a knot So I hopped in a rocket And met the prophet at the top Yo That's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures But we just gonna let that breathe For a second You know what I mean? The Bible says he was been forgiven much, loves much We're gonna talk about BC a little bit My depravity was total, not small like pox I was chained to sin, I couldn't take off the locks I thought I was a player, a match with the flavor So y'all yeah, know what the time is, but I ain't bet Isaiah I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace I would toot my horn at parties, and I would do bars Got so intoxicated, I was ready to do Mars Notorious for acting pretty silly in my city Philly Friends hear about it and be like, whoa did he really? Because I played dirty Bill Lambeer style Through great mercy spirit filled and dear child Went from so gritty to headed to a gold city In Christ I shine the world's like no biggie Whatever time to sing I'm putting faith on the song 112 displayed in John the way to respond When his patience runs out then it's time for the rod man Microwave wrath of God fam That's why because of Christ I got mad joy All I'm saying is I used to be a bad boy <laughs> But nowadays I'm regenerated, born again from above, fam. How else can I say that? Went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ, using literary devices. The spit is very precise. My conversion to the master was so dramatic. I just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ I couldn't lose, but to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While power records were choosing to carry G unit, I was on that revolutionary theme. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well But we noticed a big shift in 2012 Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm And crossed over without taking the crossover Made us all sober Years later, is it all over? Trip asked me 
if I was still motivated I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions They want to reach the world, by all means, keep pursuing it But tell me, why they gotta diss the church while they doing it? That's what I wanted to say, but I ain't say it though But no more laying low, I want them to play it slow And I ain't dissing them, my prayers are the proof Like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth CHH is like gorillas in the mist With no brotherly love, it's like Philly don't exist What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere Cats appear most concerned about a rap career Brothers overseas being slain in the sand While we're vain in our plan Taking fame in some fans And I ain't got time to philosophize Satan got a plot device I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize On top of all that, Donald Trump's the president It's all good though, cause Jesus Trump's the president So more than ever, I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled And we ain't never gonna stop working the Corey Red. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with the funding grace. And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left. Till Jesus put death to death The beauty of the victory Truly is a mystery The cross of Jesus Christ Is at the nucleus of history Before the cross They were saved on credit After the cross We've been saved on debit Since our champion In the great war suffered We gonna proclaim his death Like the Lord suffered So welcome to the Still Jesus Project Yo, we just getting started And we got a lot left A 5,000-year-old tree? This is Ken Ham, speaker, author, and blogger on biblical apologetics and the gospel. If I said Methuselah, who would you think of? Well, probably the man from the Bible who lived nearly 1,000 years. But did you know he shares a name with a bristlecone pine tree in California that's believed to be nearly 5,000 years old? That supposed age comes from the tree rings. You see, it's believed that each of these rings is an annual ring. But it's been shown that this just isn't true. Droughts, fires and years with too much rain can affect how many rings a tree produces. You can't just count the number of rings and get an exact age. Methuselah is an old tree, but it's not that old. It likely started growing shortly after Noah's flood about 4,000 years ago. Discover more about dating methods and the age of the earth by visiting AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily email updates from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine, this little light of
Ice core dating, is it reliable? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. Trying to determine how long it took to form the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland, scientists take a sample and they count the individual layers. Now they believe each layer represents a year, but individual storms can actually leave their own layers so one layer doesn't always equal one year. Now ice cores were laid down after Noah's flood during the ice age. Computer simulations show this period was characterized by huge storms that dumped many inches of snow every week. As I once shared with Bill Nye the science guy, 20 or more layers could have formed every year for many years after the flood. Ice cores don't prove long ages, they're explained in a biblical worldview. Discover answers to your questions about science, the Bible, and more at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
population of 7 billion just from two people 6,000 years ago. But let's think about this. Adam and Eve had children, and their children had children. Of course, at the beginning, brothers and sisters had to marry one another, and that wasn't a problem until God, through Moses, commanded against it much later. The global Noah's flood then reset the population to just eight. Since then, if the population doubled every 150 years, you reach the current world population. Actually, it's evolutionists who can't explain why there's so few people, given their supposed long ages of human history. Listen to this program again, view a transcript, or share with others when you go to AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to our full-size ARC at ARC Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. 
Yahoo.com. This little light, this little light.
The Bible and interracial marriage? This is Ken Ham, author of the children's book, One Blood for Kids. Until 1967, so-called interracial marriage was illegal in much of the United States. Now, some people even tried to use the Bible to justify their position against these marriages. But the Bible's clear. We're all one race descended from Adam and Eve. The reason we look a little different is that the event of the Tower of Babel split up the gene pool, resulting in different people groups. There's only one marriage the Bible speaks against, a marriage between the two spiritual races. Biologically, we're all one race. Spiritually, we all belong to the lost or the saved race. Those of the saved race, Christians, should never knowingly marry someone of the lost race. Get answers to questions about so-called races, racism, and the true history in God's Word when you go to AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. 
go fish with Jesus, Jesus I love thee and it's in Trippy Toll Radio and if you want to find out more about Go Fish go to gofishguys.com that's G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O gofishguys.com and next time I'm going to do a recording this is from Wretches called a Roman Catholic versus a Protestant here on Trippy Toll Radio What I believe in religion, to name one religion to answer our questions, to help us know how we're supposed to live and what the meaning of life is supposed to be. But it's a world, it's such a vast place, and so many people grew up in so many different situations and conditions. Doesn't that mean everyone has different questions to ask? Doesn't that mean they're going to require different answers? I'm very Catholic, and I was—I mean, I was totally born and raised in Christian ideals, but I also feel like it's okay to accept that some people are going to need different ways to live their life. They're going—they're going to need um, different answers, and that might mean that Catholicism or even Christianity isn't the one that's going to provide those answers. So, you said that Adolf Hitler could be forgiven if he would repent and be human. Uh, have humility, and I understand that, and I believe that. But I have a friend who's a Sikh, who's one of the most humble people I've ever met, and he's never going to convert to Christianity. But that, does that mean he's going to go to hell? If God truly loves him, and if my friend truly, truly lives in the way that Christians also try to strive for, I don't feel like God would hate him that okay. much to sin. I, I haven't done a good job of, of proclaiming something clearly then, okay? You just used the law and said that we need to try to be good. I'm here to proclaim I'm bad, and the Bible says we're all bad. Nobody does good. We all fall short of God's standard. You, me, the Sikh, the Muslim, everybody. Nobody does good. No, not one. I'm here to proclaim don't try harder. Don't work harder. Instead, repent and put your trust in Jesus. He worked best. He worked hardest, all of that goodness credited to your account, because he is good and you're not. That's biblical Christianity, and with all due respect, that is not what Roman Catholicism teaches. The Council of Trent, 1543, lasted about five years. It said that if you believe in grace alone, which is what I'm proclaiming to you, faith alone, which is what I'm screaming as loudly as I can, and Jesus Christ alone, your church said, I'm anathema, I am damned. They understood the difference between imputed and infused righteousness. You believe that when you are baptized, you get an injection, you're infused with righteousness, and then through works of love and charity, doing the sacraments, confessing your sins, not committing any mortal sins, you then become righteous, and then you are justified. What I'm proclaiming is, Jesus Christ justifies the ungodly, then we do good things in response to what has been done for us, and that is called imputed righteousness. I am credited with the righteousness of Jesus, forgiven because of his passive obedience, made righteous because he kept all the laws for me. He has done it all, credited to me, completely forgiven. That's not what Rome teaches. So you and I don't believe the same thing about justification and salvation. So we, we are different, okay? Because we have different questions. No, no, because we understand the truth differently. One of us has it right, one of us has it wrong. And that's what people have always understood. And that's why your church said, I'm anathema. They believed I'm wrong. And I'm okay with that. I'm not hurt. I'm not offended. I'm not going to go blow up the Vatican. 
Okay? I disagree. They disagree. We disagree. So why am I here today to persuade you of the truth? I cannot do that, but I believe the Holy Spirit of God can convert you when you hear about the true Jesus. When you hear that you don't have to go to a man in a confessional booth. You don't have to pray to Mary. Run to Jesus. He's your one intercessor between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. No works, no prayers, no beads. Run to Jesus. Grace alone, faith alone, in Him alone. Because if you're trying to God's favor, then you will be cast out because God will not have a work-righteous person in His kingdom. They will only be there by His grace and mercy. My Roman Catholic friend, we disagree. I do not hate you. I care about you, and I want you to go to heaven by Jesus' merits, not yours, okay? Make sure you understand the difference, okay? So you're saying that people who don't believe, who are Muslim, who are Sikh, who have no religion at all, they can't love? I didn't say that. They can't want to do good, not sure. because yeah, they can. Sure, they can. but because they just want to do good, because it brings them joy, and because they see other people sure. have benefit yeah. from it. Yeah, sure they can do good, all right? But that doesn't mean they're pleasing to God. So they're damned then. Because they sin. We all sin. And fall short of the glory of God. You just quoted a Bible verse, Romans 3. Yes. I'm not trying to... You just did. Everybody here has sinned. Do we agree? Yes. All right. So if God is just, what should he do with sinners? What should God do with sinners? He, he loves them regardless. And he God, in a general sense, loves everybody. Yes. But that doesn't mean they're in a right relationship with him. God causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. God is so good, he provides food for Adolf Hitler and Jerry Sandusky. And for all of us, that's how good God is in a general sense. We are all God's children. But that doesn't mean we're in a right relationship with the Father unless we have a relationship with his Son. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus. And so we have to have Jesus if we're going to have the Father. Once again, that was from Wretched. And that is... Uh, this is Wretched Radio with Todd oh, Real. Oh, can't remember. <laughs> Sorry, that one started. Um... Well, the other clip goes is wretched, and then it's uh that's what they're called. I mean, <laughs> and uh, it's w r e t c h e d, and you can go wretched dot org and find more there, and also on they're on YouTube. And here's the one that started already and just started over. This one's called "Hey Lady, Prepare to Be Drafted." This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Oh, can't remember that name. This is Wretched Radio. Gentlemen, maybe you can help me. There was a brilliant talk show host who said, whenever a culture is not informed predominantly by Christianity, women and children suffer. Brilliant. Who was that exactly? Oh, I always heard you say that. I didn't know you got it from somewhere else. (laughs) I must have because it's a pretty smart observation, and I had to have ripped it off. But that is the reality, and we see it over and over and over again. Men are brutes. Might makes right in our world. We're stronger. Please don't take it from me. Ask Martina Navratilova. Men are just stronger. 
and we will use that might to command obedience, to indeed subjugate, to indeed treat poorly. That is the heart of the man who is unregenerated, but the one who is in Christ now has a different attitude. Image bearers, that's what women and children are, fellow image bearers, equal value. And equality, by the way, when it comes to equality of value, does not mean sameness. Yes, we are equal in the eyes of God, but clearly we're different. Yes, yes, you can point to some women who can bench press more than, say, Tony can. Some. What? Many. All, actually. I think all is is correct. Men are just, it's just the muscle, it's just the way that God, you know, made us. The unregenerate man will use that to keep him barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, but not the man of God who sees them as having the same value in the eyes of God, recognizing that equality does not mean sameness. That is why, as we continue to see the fruit of a post-Christian Western civilization, women are going to take a shellacking, and so will children. And you are seeing it right now. In, In fact, I would actually suggest to you that we've been living in a post-Christian world for longer than just, you know, like last week. All kinds of signs. If indeed my premise is correct that women get wounded when people are not behaving Christianly, go back to Roe v. Wade, 1973. Women think that they got this right to do whatever they want to do with their bodies. How many women scarred? There's been 60 million abortions in this country. I say that's 60 million women who have been hurt. But today we're seeing it all over the place. A federal court ruling, this was in Texas, that women can go to war. In fact, they can be inscripted. That's right, ladies. Congratulations. Conscripted? Enscripted? Conscripted. Well, see, Joey, here's where you're wrong again. They can be drafted, is what we're saying. That's exactly correct. Thank you for being a peacemaker, Tony. An all-male draft has been ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge in Texas, declaring the time has passed for debating the role of women in the Army. Is it? Says who? (laughs) U.S. District Judge Gray Miller ruled that while historical restrictions on women serving in combat may have justified past discrimination, men and women are now equally able to fight. All right, sir, I'll tell you what. Why don't you ask your wife or daughter to step into the ring with a male of the same age, bare-fisted, and duke it out? They should be able to win at least half the time, right? So we'll, we'll do this 10 times, and if necessary, 11 for the tiebreaker, and let's just see if your wife and daughter are able to fight just like men. Honestly, this is my favorite part. This is absolutely my favorite part of the whole shebang. I I was thinking to myself, what women were pushing for this? Now, I suspect that there are some, but to be drafted? What women? Like, like this ruling happens, and women are going, yeah! You know, I'm pretty sure my granddaughters were pushing for that. 
<laughs> Who's no orders? No women would do that. And sure enough, the case was brought by the National Coalition for Men, <laughs> a men's rights group that stated an all-male draft is unfair. Of course it was men who promoted this and pushed for this. Of course it was. What woman in her right mind would say, yeah, I love that idea. That's something that I really, really desire. Again, I suppose a few. I might argue it wasn't really men. It was males. Well, I don't even know that we can use that word anymore. No, I'm just saying I don't know that they qualify for the moniker men. Yeah, that's that's that is really exactly. not gentlemen. Yep, that that that's that's this is it's an act of wickedness, actually, putting women on the front line of battle, drafting them. You you, you will go to war. We will draft. We'll pick your number and you will go. See, now wow. a satire that would be well done. Oh. In the old days, this would have been considered satire. Not anymore. No, we happening. are living in a satirical world, and it's not funny. On Tuesday, the Senate approved an expansive military pos- a policy bill that would, for the first time, require young women to register for the draft. So it's not just a court in Texas. It's in the halls of power in Washington, D.C. They had surprisingly broad support among Republican leaders and women in both parties. Well, there you have it. When you put your trust in horses, chariots, and political parties, you're going to be disappointed. Now, that's not to suggest that there isn't any consideration in which party you vote for. Just as an aside, I think I'm going to be talking to Phil Johnson about this on Too Wretched for Radio. There is a push inside of evangelicalism to say there are other issues that are worthy of our consideration besides abortion that there are other issues in our culture that are so bad they need to be addressed that it is understandable how some people would say it's okay to vote for a Democrat because of this social policy and forget about the life issue. Let me tell you something. That takes hold. You're going to see lots of big changes in this country. Women suffer. Two transgender high school athletes, they're mopping the floor in Connecticut and track and field. The dominance of two transgender athletes has stirred resentment among some competitors and their families. No, you don't say. Who's going to suffer? Women, children. The first fellow said, I acknowledge that I'm stronger and then many of her, than many of her cisgender competitors, but says girls who are not transgender may have other advantages. Okay, here they are. Get ready yeah. for just a truckload of brilliance one high jumper could be taller and have longer legs than the other but the other could have perfect form and then do better one sprinter could have parents who spend so much money on personal training for their child which in turn would cause that child to run faster in other words they've got privilege in some areas well we've got privilege now too we're actually men acting like girls the second fellow said that she felt he really a competitor had an unfair advantage, it should simply push her to try to improve. <laughs> that's that's being mansplained right there. Wow. <laughs> Here's a mom. We all know the outcome of the race before it even starts. It's demoralizing. I fully support and I'm happy for these athletes for being true to themselves, yada, yada. Blah, blah, blah. They should have the right to express themselves, but... Athletics have always had extra rules to keep the competition fair. 
There are no rules now, madam. There's no gender differences, which is amazing to me. If there's no difference between genders, then who cares what your outward manifestation is? Who cares? They're, they're simply, with a brain that's broken, conforming to gender stereotypes. That's all they're doing. This, said Executive Director Glenn Lungarini, this is about someone's right to compete. I don't think this is that different from other classes of people who in the not-too-distant past were not allowed to compete. I think it's going to take education and understanding to get that point to that point on this issue. Gentlemen? Wait, what was that line? Which one? You bore me. That, is, <laughs> that's what I was going to ask you for. Awful. What's your response? You bore me. Wow. Yep, burr. By the way, the Pentagon spent nearly $8 million to treat 1,500 transgender troops since 2016. Ah, tax dollars well spent. Who suffers in a post-Christian world? Women and children. U.K. police warn against new teen trend of burning plastic trash cans to inhale the fumes. Why? Kids are so hurting. They are so confused. Return, this is Fox News, return of Momo Suicide Challenge. Apparently, it's this online thing. I don't understand how it works. These kind of things wander about every cycle on that scene. But apparently, it's reemerged, and so a lot of parents are concerned because the kids end up killing themselves or doing wicked things. Who suffers in a post-Christian world? I heard somebody the other day use that old trope, be on the right side of history. Oh, you bore me. <laughs> We've already... We've already seen the history. Women and children used to be treated poorly because of Christianity. Treated well and rightly. Honestly, the right side of history. This is Wretched Radio. This is Wretched Radio with Talk Free. Wow. <laughs> polls, polls. Who needs polls? Well, apparently Lifeway, but other than that... Okay, George Barna, there's two people. This is, I stand corrected, Wretched Radio, a new poll that is claiming more Americans are now suddenly pro-life than they are pro-choice, which is super groovy, except the poll that was taken last month said just the opposite. It whiplashes, it careens, and while it can ultimately be interesting, it doesn't mean that we use polls to persuade people you shouldn't want to kill children. Instead, we need to persuade people that they need forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We need to persuade people that what you are doing is a wicked, evil thing, and you need to repent. I still remember, do you remember hearing the John Speed presentation last week when he was at the Mapachapaquaqua, something like that, New York. I think that's what it's called. Uh, Mapaqua. I think those are all Indian names up there. Can I use the word names still? Is that okay? <laughs> At any rate, he, he said to the council, you need to repent. You need to repent. This is the bloody business. No matter how you slice it or define it, you're dismembering children, and their blood is on your hands. Repent. Well, that's just... That's that's just the way that we should be talking to people, is, is what that is. And John Speed did that. So let's put away our polls. They're very nice. They're very interesting. But they don't get the job done. 
people need the gospel. Remember, their thinking cannot be changed by using good thinking. Their thinking can be changed by preaching the gospel. God regenerates them. Then he fixes their thinking. I remember a number of years ago, there was a fellow who said that he got saved, and immediately, one of, the, one of his first thoughts was, uh-oh, abortion is wrong. Well, where did that come from? God's fixing his thinking. Times Square, it looks like this is going to happen on May the 4th. Responding to New York's legalization of abortion up until the moment of birth, focus on the family, plans to blast Live ultrasounds on monitors and screens across Times Square. That can actually be pretty effective because they see it's a baby. So good on them for doing that. I think that's terrific. That's got to do these things, I think, thoughtfully. You can't show images of abortions tastefully. Can't be done because it's entirely distasteful. But we can do it thoughtfully considering kids, children, but showing an ultrasound of a child who is still whole because... He or she hasn't been dismembered by a forceps or with a scissors right through the back of the neck, sucking their brains out. Honestly, could it be more barbaric? Oh. The new abortion Just, movie's rated R? What's rated R? The abortion. Hang on. Uh, what's it called? Oh, is this that new one that's coming? That's got yeah. uh, the the guy who's pro. I think he's Roman Catholic and he's pro life. I think is that the fella? Yeah. Um, hang on. Oh yeah, I did get an R rating. I think was it because I got of the an R rating because yeah. of the it's got no sex, no nudity. No swearing. No, nope. just got R rating because of you can't show you can't show abortion. Well, they just don't want life. it. Well, you know what? Yeah, look. I, maybe they made the right decision. Because we, do we want kids seeing that? I think every parent should make that decision. So you know, it do, doesn't break my heart because those those images they're worse than the images that you see in Saving Private Ryan. And it's, it's awful. So you know, maybe it's a deserved rating. Wrong reasons and perhaps wrong motivation, but the right rating. What's the name of the kid who was involved in that? I can't remember his name. I'm quite certain he's Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics have been way ahead on the abortion issue. Do you got the kid's name who made that thing? I can never remember it at any rate. Hey, speaking of Roman Catholics, <laughs> speaking of Roman, before we speak about Roman Catholics, might I suggest another way to engage in the war for life in New York City, Preborn has started a clinic there, a life clinic, where they give free ultrasounds to women. Say, that's the ultrasound, that's that's where the power in this, because people see it and go, okay, I can't take that, that connection between mom and baby. It's unmistakable. I think it's written into their DNA. We just know that it is wrong to do that. And ultrasounds, 80% of the time, cause the woman to say, okay, how can you help me? Because I can't kill my baby. They could use your support, preborn.org slash wretched. It's a fight, New York City, and it ain't cheap there either. Preborn.org slash wretched, 28 bucks for an ultrasound to save a child's life. Speaking of Roman, did you find that guy yet by any chance? I have. I, I know who wrote it and directed it, Chuck Councilman and, and Carrie Solomon. But Well, let's just assume they're Roman Catholic because sure. that will segue into Stephen Colbert sitting down with... Uh, FR, 
James Martin, comma, S.J. Okay, the father thing I get, what's an S.J.? Probably the order he belongs to or yeah. something. Uh, something Jesuits, maybe? The Southern yeah, Society Jesuit of Convention? Jesuits. Isn't that what they're... Society of Jesus. I think that's what the Jesuits are officially called. What do they call Joey? I'm sorry. Isn't it the Society of Jesus or something Uh, like that? Yeah, I think you're right. So he's he's from the Society of Jesus, and he's doing Faith in Focus, a sit-down interview with Stephen Colbert. We all know he's politically liberal. I wonder where he stands on the life issue. Somebody just told me. Who? I think Al told me. Um, the Roman Catholic Senator Durbin, uh, Senator Durbin, is, was not allowed to take communion in his Roman Catholic Church. There you go. To, yeah. you're, you're, get, you're getting warm. Now, how's about church discipline would be the next step? Wouldn't that be powerful? A United States senator excommunicated from a church. It would be better if it were from an Orthodox church, but nevertheless, here is Stephen Colbert with fur... James Martin Who is God for you? Like, when you think about God, what's your image? People have different images. Uh, it's Christ. It's, it's Jesus. It's mm-hmm. not, it's it's not the beard. Okay. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the old man with right. the beard. It's not uh, the, the Old Testament God. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I'm glad he said Jesus. That's a good thing. But Jesus and the Old Testament God, one and the same. When you see me, you see the Father. Was it Nathaniel who asked? Was it Philip who asked? Show us the Father. Show us the. Was it Nathaniel or Philip? I, I don't think he was Roman Catholic, and he didn't make a movie on abortion, though. At any rate, he said, "Show us the Father." And Jesus said, "Have you been with me this long, and you don't get it? When you look at me, you see the Father. He is the express image of the invisible God. Want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. Stare at him with unveiled face. Be transformed from one degree of glory unto another." But he's also the same God as God in the Old Testament. Not sure what Stephen meant by that. I think of Jesus, and then that image dissolves, because I then try to subsume that single image into the Trinity. Okay. And and then no, it just becomes right. um, a bit of like one of those amorphous, all creatures made of pure energy from Star yeah. Trek. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, fine. No, it's not fine. God presents himself as a trinity, three distinct persons, one God. Our God isn't, if you will, just Jesus. Jesus is God, but so is the Father, so is the Son. And to make Jesus somehow subsume the trinity or the trinity subsumed to Jesus, whichever way that sub goes, uh, that's to blur the way that God actually presents himself in trinitarian fashion. I thought... For some reason, was I hearing just a little bit of unhitching the Old Testament? You know, that whole image of that Old Testament God, the beard thing, not so nuts about that. Stephen Colbert with a Jesuit. I was walking down the street, and someone handed me a little green. I still have it. Oh, yeah, those little ones. Little green New Testament Proverbs and Psalms. And I opened it up, and I opened it up to a little glossary in the front, and it said basically verses to read based upon, like if you, right. and it says anxiety. Worry, yeah. So I went to anxiety, and it was it was Matthew chapter 5. It was the sermon. And so I say to you, do not worry. For who among you by worrying could change a single hair in his head or how to keep it to the span of his life? I understood the real meaning of the phrase. It spoke to me. Like it read off the page. Like the words of Christ just read off the page. I was no effort. And I, I, 
stood on that street corner in the cold and read the sermon. That's beautiful. My life has never been the same. And that apparently is his conversion story. Let's learn a lesson from that. Telling our conversion story, I was reading an article. Uh, Maybe I've got that around here. Uh, Don't be confused about evangelism. And it was saying that evangelism is not sharing your testimony. Well, I, I think it can be, actually, if we do it rightly, if it does more than talk about an experience that we had, we get more details than what were just offered by Mr. Colbert. Instead, we talk about, you know what, I was tripping through life. I thought, whatever, doesn't make any difference to me. I was confronted. My conscience started screaming, sinner, condemned sinner. I knew that I was damned. And I knew that I needed a Savior. And guess what? That is when Jesus Christ became very real to me. And I repented, and I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Now my thinking is different. My life is different. Everything about me is absolutely different. That's a conversion story. And I think that most evangelistically, if you walk through the law carefully, the gospel and repentance and faith, bottom line, got to do better than Stephen Colbert just did. Until tomorrow, go serve your king. That was from Wretched, my final Morbidum, go to Wretched.org, that's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G. And that's all I got for the show, so I'm going to go out with Yanti and friends. Bye for now. Yeah.